Well, dear friends, welcome. Uh, welcome to our uh, Tuesday night practice talk. Uh, for the past several months, we've been looking at uh, various sutras, uh, teachings of the Buddha found in the uh, chanting and recitation book. Part of our uh, reason for doing that is just over the years, there's been an interest in, in hearing these, these discourses, these teachings that are handed down through the, through the ages, through originally uh, orally told, and then eventually uh, several hundred years after the Buddha's death, uh, written down for the first time. And the Thich Nhat Hanh and the monks and nuns of Plum Village have curated a particular set of sutras, of which there are thousands, uh, and offered them to us uh, as part of our regular practice, re our regular practice evenings. And if you've been attending Open Way for any time, you'll know that we usually do a sutra service once a month. And so the program council decided that it would be interesting to take these various sutras and these discourses and spend a little time with each one uh, outside of the sutra service recitation. And so tonight we'll be looking at the discourse on knowing the better way to catch a snake. Um, all sutras uh, the first several paragraphs set the scene. Uh, they talk about why this particular teaching is being presented. Uh, part of the reason for doing that uh, is to really bring these characters and bring the Sangha to life, the ancient 2,600-year-old uh, Sangha. Uh, the, original Sangha of uh, the historical person, the Buddha. And in this sutra, they always begin, all of the sutras begin with, I heard these words one time. And so the reason for that is originally it was an oral tradition. And so they were continually talking about um, uh, that these were actual words that were spoken. So. I heard these words one time. And now we know that, okay, this was a particular moment in the history of the Buddha. We know this now. And, in this, and then it gives a location. And here the Buddha was staying at the Anatta Pindika Monastery in the Jetta Grove near Srivasti. Um, Anatta Pindika was a very wealthy layperson who was very close with the Buddha and with the Sangha and just fell in love with his teachings. And so Anattapindika found this mango grove, uh, the Jetta Grove, and thought it would be a wonderful place for the monks and nuns and the Buddha to practice, particularly during the uh, rainy seasons uh, when they, traveling is hard. And the person who owned the mango grove didn't want to sell it and told Anattapindika that he would sell it to him if he were to cover the entire grove with gold coins. So he did. He got a wheelbarrow full of coins and started laying them down and laying them down. 
and eventually um, was not able to fill the whole grove. But the uh, landowner probably saw all that gold and said, well, okay, you can have it. It's a good effort. Um, did that really happen? I, I don't know, but it does uh, demonstrate, I think, the love that this uh, layperson had for the Sangha and for the community and for the Buddha. And we also know just from this little bit of information that the Buddha Sangha is pretty well established at this point. Uh, this isn't his first uh, teaching. This isn't the first time uh, that he's gone out and began to uh, uh, talk about the Dharma. This is uh, probably later in his life and in his uh, time as uh, teaching. We know that it's a little later because he's already found uh, wealthy patrons who have supported him. And there's a, a sangha now that's established. And so it says at that time, the bhikshu Arita, who before being ordained had been a vulture trainer, had the wrong view that according to the teachings of the Buddha, sense pleasures are not an obstacle to the practice. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, in his commentary, tells us that the reason they call him out as a vulture trainer is simply to distinguish him from another monk whose name is also Arita. So it's uh, Arita, the old vulture trainer, not Arita, the other guy. Um, and then after hearing this, many bhikshus went to Arita and asked, Brother Arita, do you really believe that the Buddha teaches that sense pleasures are not an obstacle to the practice? And Arita replied, yes, friends. It is true that I believe the Buddha does not regard sense pleasures as an obstacle to the practice. And the bhikshus try to correct him. Try to, uh, the other monks uh, try to explain to him why this is a wrong view. But he, uh, Arita digs his heels in. He says, no. I still think that it really is, uh, the Buddha teaches that sense pleasures are not an obstacle to the practice. Um, makes you wonder a little bit about this man, uh, about Arita, and uh, what, how, did, how did he get to this place? Um, because it's very clear that the Buddha teaches that sense pleasures are an obstacle to the practice. He has many examples of, of that teaching. And Arita knows this. He knows that this has been taught. So why, I, it's very curious why he's saying this, why he's digging his heels in. I have the sense that he had an insight uh, while he was practicing. And he heard what the Buddha was saying with his words, but that Arita had an experience that contradicted that. And he disagreed with um, uh, that particular teaching, saying that, you know, maybe there's this possibility that when the Buddha says that, he doesn't mean exactly that. Maybe he's, there's a little uh, flexibility in that. And there's examples of where the Buddha talks about how lovely a view is from a peak of a mountain and just stops and, 
and looks at that. And maybe Arita has seen these things and thinks, yeah, see, this, he's enjoying this sense pleasure through his eyes. This can't be all bad. This, maybe it's not an obstacle. And so his thinking probably led him to think, like, well, maybe all sense pleasures are not obstacles. And uh, he, I, I think he, he is quite proud of this, uh, this insight and this observation. And he's probably excited to share it. Um, in that uh, commentary I was talking about, Thich Nhat Hanh tells us that Arita, former, formerly, uh, before this particular sutra took place, had actually been um, uh, put on uh, probation from the Sangha and temporarily put on leave and had to go uh, not be part of the community for a little bit because of some other willfulness. So this probably isn't a new thing for, uh, for Rita to be having these thoughts. But when I read that, it made me think of all the many times that I thought that I had understand, understood a particular teaching and, um, and used it to justify uh, behavior. Uh, saying that, well, um, I know that it says this, but you know, there's these loopholes and exceptions and things like that. Uh, one, I, I was talking with Peggy earlier, and I was remembering a long time ago when we used to stay in Swan Lake uh, at a um, really lovely uh, place uh, that's now actually used for weddings and other functions and kind of got out of our price range. But luckily, we got a couple of times to practice up there. And uh, my um, now wife, then uh, girlfriend, and I went on a retreat. And they're, you're encouraged not to have excessive talking. Uh, encouraged to just be as quiet as can be. And so you know, I had been on retreats by myself and was very good at not talking, but I'd never been on a retreat with somebody else. And, um, you, know, I, you know, really wanted to not talk at all. And she did want to talk, and I uh, kind of dug my heels in. And, no, nope, it says right here, you know, we're not supposed to talk. And uh, instead of of enjoying that experience, it actually became, no, these are the rules, we have to stick to them, and I'm going to uh, uh, you know, get grumpy about uh, any, anything that you might say. Uh, so luckily, that was a long time ago, and as I said, she's my wife now, so we, we got over that, but boy, she, it was pretty generous of her. Uh, and there's, there's other examples, too, especially when we're new to the practice, and we want to um, justify a particular behavior and use uh, some part of some teaching to justify that, rather than looking at them as the whole. And so, after all this, um, conversation with the bhikshus, with the other monks. The monks take uh, the case to the, you know, the guy. They go to the Buddha. And they say, Buddha, <laughs> Arita is going around saying that you said that sense pleasures are not an obstacle to practice. Uh, 
And so Buddha calls him in and really gives him a kind of a dressing down. Uh, this is the abridged version in the sutra book here, but it really takes him to task and says that he would never teach that, that he is completely wrong. He has misunderstood um, both the letter and the spirit of his teachings. Uh, that line is important because when the Buddha asks him if he believes that, uh, Arita says, well, I believe the spirit of the teachings says that. Um, so he's saying, I know your words say that, but I think that there's uh, something else to it. Um, in one translation I read of the sutra, the Buddha calls him worthless man about like 175 times. It's not really that many, but it's very many. He just says, worthless man, and then he goes and gives him a real big dressing down. I actually love that because we always think of this Buddha, the Buddha as this real gentle, kind person. And here he is. I, I don't know if he's upset, but he is probably a little concerned that there are uh, monks and nuns that are misrepresenting his teaching. This is another clue, I think, that the Sangha is quite large at this time. He doesn't have quite as much control over uh, who's saying what. And, um, and this is where the Buddha gives the analogy of uh, the teachings as a snake. Uh, he talks about if uh, you need to catch a snake, if you're inexperienced or you don't uh, think about it too much, you might go and grab a poisonous snake, and it'll bite you. And, and the Buddha says his teachings are like that. If you, um, if you try just to uh, understand the, the teachings so that you can gain something, gain some um, understanding, gain an edge up on somebody in a debate, he actually talks about uh, not using it just for intellectual debate or um, to win arguments, or because you're curious, curious um, that uh, that's like approaching the teachings uh, and being bit by them, uh, by a poisonous snake. But then he says, you know, if you are intelligent about this, if you're intelligent about these teachings, you'll go and find a, a long stick that has a fork at the end and put it right by the snake's head. Then you can grab it right underneath, um, right underneath its head so the fangs can't get you. And he said the tail might wrap around, the rest of the body might wrap around part of you, uh, but you won't be bit by it. Um, you won't be uh, injured by this. And so, I believe at this time in the Buddha's life and in his time teaching, uh, he does have this concern about how uh, his teachings are going to be uh, carried on and going out into the world. And so he teaches about how dangerous they can be if applied incorrectly, or in applied, uh, to use his words here, unintelligently. Because ultimately, yes, he was the final authority uh, on this uh, to the bhikshu Arita. But ultimately, he wants us to be the final authorities. 
He wants us to be able to uh, apply uh, what he's saying um, with our own intellect, with our own practice, with our own ability uh, to, to understand. He also talks about if, if we are engaging with the practices in a way that uh, is a little less intelligent, uh, if we're engaging with the practice uh, for that to satisfy our curiosity, to win debates, uh, to um, gain uh, something that then we can, can use, uh, specifically says that it leads to exhaustion. Um, and I had this uh, experience recently. I was talking with um, a friend of mine who's a Lutheran pastor. And we were talking about there's sometimes there's a movement in Christianity to... Um, radically humanize the stories in the Bible. So uh, I think, were you telling me about this, Chris? Where, um, you know, when, the, when Christ is teaching and uh, produces all the loaves and fishes, is able to um, have this miracle where everybody can be fed. One, some scholarship was uh, trying to argue that, it, well, it's not really that they produced all these loaves and fishes. It's more that uh, he turned people's hearts to a spirit of generosity who then uh, ran home and got all of their provisions and then sat down and shared it with everybody. Um, which is a lovely idea, but I think um, what we are talking about uh, is that after a while, that kind of thinking really, for me, is exhausting. Uh, to try to always justify uh, these um, particular stories, to try to um, make it so that it's true, factually true. Um, and it made me realize uh, how, what a gift it is when we can it, not um, have to force something into a particular framework uh, for it to be um, true, true in the sense that it leads us towards um, leads us towards opening our hearts, leads us towards becoming uh, more engaged people. Uh, so there, I've had this experience more and more of just uh, um, an exhaustion leading from. Uh, trying to make everything fit a particular, for me, it's trying to fit a particular humanist uh, and or evidence-based scientific mold. Um, when I really feel like I'm missing kind of the spirit of what some of these, uh, these teachings are for. Um, right at the end of the, we're, so there's four sections. We're still on the first section. We're probably not going to go through all of them. And this is the abridged version. Um, right at the end of the first section, uh, the 
the Buddha is talking about uh, another very famous uh, analogy of, you know, if you are trying to cross a river and, you know, you don't have a way to get across, you might build a raft um, and then get across. He said, now, and then he asked the bhikshus, now would someone be wise if they then said, you know, I put a lot of time and effort into this raft. I don't really need it anymore, but I really like it, so I'm going to carry it with me and just uh, continue to go on your way and carry the raft with you. And of course, the, the Buddha's likening his teachings to that raft. Uh, and it's true, we put a lot of time and a lot of energy into our practice, into our um, understanding, into our development. And for me, the crux of, of this sutra is at the end of this first section where the Buddha says, I have given this teaching on the raft many times to remind you how necessary it is to let go of all the true teachings, not to mention teachings that are not true. For me, that's the, the crux of this um, sutra. It really just... Um, this is after he's given a monk a, a dressing down for misrepresenting, slant, he says, slandering me. Um, at the end, he says, and remember, we have to let go of all of these teachings, not to mention the ones that aren't true. So the Buddha then uh, goes on uh, after this to teach about uh, right view, to teach about um, the uh, six bases of consciousness, that is the form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, and the world, and not to confuse uh, the self with any of those things. Um, and he goes on to, to talk about how wrong views uh, can then bring up in us fear and anxiety when we try to cling to uh, those six things, form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, and the world, uh, that it can lead us uh, into fear and anxiety. One of the big errors, I think, that um, Arita, Bhikshu Arita made was not that, um, that it's unacceptable to enjoy sense pleasures, to enjoy things in the world but that chasing after them, uh, trying to um, create situations where that's all we have, um, our enjoyable sense pleasures, um, is an obstacle to letting go of, of those teachings. It makes sense. Um, it was a, a simple error. Um, 
but the the error was in confusing the um, when you become obsessed with or caught by or always desiring after sense pleasures. Um, you haven't yet let go of the idea of a self. Of a, um, you haven't yet let go of the idea that um, you are connected uh, to everything else. And there's another part um, at the end of the sutra where the Buddha um, talks about uh, himself as the, uh, the Tathagata, uh, the one who comes from suchness and goes into suchness. And he talks about... Um, he wants to be very clear because he's just given, um, you know, Rita a dressing down, and then he goes launches into a talk about right view and non-self. Then he wants to make very clear again at the end of the sutra. He says, "But remember, I'm not teaching about nihilism here. I'm not teaching about um, uh, that there is no such thing as a self because, um, you know, here we are." I remember uh, David Maslanka often would say, uh, well, in, in talking about non-self, he'd say, of course there's a self. You're sitting over there, and I'm sitting over here. Right? It's, um, of course there's a self. And so I think that um, he is reminding us to let go of that teaching too, to use that as a practice, but to not confuse that with... Um, not confuse the practice of non-self as the truth of non-self, uh, because it's more than that. Um, not to confuse um, using the idea of non-self as an antidote to the idea of self, as the Buddha is saying that there's nothing, that it's all empty. Uh, we just say they're all empty, but what I mean is that it's all uh, nihilistic, that there's nothing. And then he says, uh, which is the other crux. I know you're only supposed to have one crux in a sutra, but this is the other crux. He says, in truth, the Tathagata teaches only the ending of suffering in order to attain the state of non-fear. So when I was um, trying to be super quiet and follow the rules on the retreat, um, I missed that part about uh, the end of suffering because it was creating suffering, uh, both in me and in my wife. And, And so... That um, I think of as um, the crux of this, the other crux of this sutra. Um, because you have to be able to let go of these teachings eventually. Um, 
And also, you have a great guidepost. Um, you have a great sign post, rather, leading you in the direction you need to go. Is the way that you're applying your practice uh, leading towards the end of suffering and leading you towards uh, non-fear? Or is it creating suffering and um, developing that fear and anxiety in ourselves? And so, this particular sutra for me has a lot of uh, some of the greatest hits uh, from the other sutras. And in Thich Nhat Hanh's commentary, he talks about how happy he was to discover this because he came from a Mahayana tradition. This is a Theravadan sutra. Um, and he was so happy to discover it because he had been studying the Diamond Sutra and the Heart Sutra. And he said, this one's great because all of the teachings in there are in this one too. Uh, a lot of the references um, from those other sutras are in this particular one. So it's in, I believe it's included in this uh, recitation book because it's very clear. Um, it's very simple in some ways. Uh, and it also uh, really gets at um, this idea of being our own independent practitioners um, and applying ourselves intelligently and applying ourselves in a way that um, uh, that leads to the end of suffering in ourselves and in other people. Um, and also, it's a reminder that the Buddhist Sangha was a bunch of people and that there were errors and that people made mistakes uh, and that, um, that there's a reason that we have uh, senior practitioners that we can come to when we have questions. And, uh, and it's a reminder that um, the Buddha, in his... Teaching is very loving, compassionate, and kind, but not always as gentle as we make him out to be. Um, that he uh, was able to be very firm when he needed to be, uh, in a very skillful way, um, in order to uh, put Arita back on track, especially since he had already been asked to step away from the Sangha for a little bit, and then he came back, and then now he's talking about this. He's, um, very firm, very clear, and very direct. Um, and also, you know, of course, Arita is us. Uh, when we have those uh, ideas about practice that we are um, holding on to that aren't leading us um, away from suffering. And also the Buddha is us. Uh, it's why we sit in a circle, and it's why we are able to share our experiences so that um, we can hear how people are applying the teachings and share how we're applying them so that um, we can hear from each other and build that, uh, build our community, and build our ability to uh, really intelligently uh, apply these. Not studying for study's sake, not practicing uh, so that we can be um, 
better at something than someone, but really working towards, uh, as he says, the only thing that he teaches is the way uh, to end suffering and attain non-fear. That's it. And all the rest is ways of doing that. Everything else that he's teaching.